Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. Again, if you're enjoying these stories, don't forget to click follow or subscribe. And hey, if, if it's possible for you to give us a rating, give us a five-star rating. And if you don't like what you hear, well, give us a five-star rating. Come on, throw us a bone. What's so hard about this? Really? We're doing this for you. Do that for us. Okay. Uh, we're here again. Wow, that's some pitch you got there. That is. Listen, I'm a, like you. I need all the love I can get. You know? uh, I'm here with Scott Lewis and, of course, our storyteller, Chuck Stead, once again. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit after the story today about some of the stories behind the stories and uh, some of the thoughts about the people and the places and the things uh, that made the stories possible. So with that, we thank you for listening. And here now is Chuck Stead. So this story is called Christmas 56. Tessie was a dark-haired, brown-eyed Irish-American, one of a family of eight girls, two boys. She first came to the village during World War II, at the time of the Depression. She was full of hope for a life that would grow out of her home back in Norwood, New Jersey. It was her older sister Mary who had been dating Walt. They were dancing or roller skating partners down along the Montvale Rink, but well, he was, he was dark-eyed, thin-haired, a well-built man, and he was fond of the whole Kylie family, not just one of them. There were a lot of pretty girls among the Kylies. And then one day, he called looking for a date, and Mary, who was now interested in a fine dancing man named Herman, she uh, turned Walt down. Not discouraged, he asked if any of the other girls were available. Tessie was waiting in the wings. And five years later, Walt and Tessie married. It was one of the few events that a great many Steads and a great many Kylies were seen at together. The Steads were not cut from the same social fabric as the Kylies. They were like many working-class families up in the Ramapo Valley. They were country folk who drew the line at social pretensions, intellectual dialogue, and much of the culture that was revered by the likes of Tessie's family. The folklore of the Steads had long mixed with the lore of the Ramapo Hills, to the Kylies, the Steads were like some branch of Appalachian mountain people, whose past may well have included moonshiners and night hunters and a whole catalog of legendary and disreputable figures. Now, to the Steads, the Kylies were high-minded Irish Catholics, all full of themselves. They hugged and they kissed and they praised their children's talents and they put them on display at family gatherings and they drank and they sang and they told stories that were fun, but lacked the sense of place that were found in the Stead stories. The Kileys held an enthusiasm for themselves that was contagious. One couldn't help but get caught up in the Kylie way of things. There seemed so many of them, and all of them so interested in each other's business. There were quite a few Steads too, actually, but uh, they talked more about places than each other, this despite the fact that they all lived very close to each other. The Kileys still had the family house down in Norwood, but only three of the married children kept their families close to home, and the rest spread out through New Jersey, Long Island, and up to Boston, whereas the Steads pretty much never left Ramapo, and most of them remained right there in the village of Hilburn. Still, I suppose the biggest difference was the Catholic presence on the calendars and holy cards and crucifixes and weekly visits to a church. This was all a part of a religion as practiced by the Kileys, as opposed to the loose references by the Steads for the local Presbyterian church a few streets over. Before she married, Tessie's father, 
Maurice, had a, a long talk with her about keeping her faith among those less religious. But it wasn't so much the lack of Catholicism that haunted Tessie as it was the hint of something else. Whenever Grandma Stead slipped into an old fragment of German language, it hinted of something old world. And when Grandpa Stead reminisced about some Indian he knew, well, it hinted of paganism. That the Steads had long held a close association with hill people of mixed blood implied the possibility of contamination, the possibility of a strain of paganism running through Walt's veins. That haunted Tessie. For Walt's part, he became baptized in order to marry. He agreed to attend church regularly, and he did his best to curb the use of the Lord's name in vain. That was a chore. Grandpa Kylie admired and approved of Walt. His daughter Tessie was a dark-haired, impetuous girl with an unpredictable temper and a rapier wit. It was good to see her in the company of a settled, easy-going man. With Walt, she was less competitive, and they made a handsome couple. When he came to see her, he dressed in cotton sport jackets, pressed trousers, vented shoes, and silk ties. He smoked a pipe, not cigarettes. He hunted deer, played baseball in the late afternoons, and was a laborer, steady, good income. He was a man. She told her sisters, Walt is Walt. His reality being basic and a predictable thing, she agreed to stay with it. Thirteen years later, I was born. That is, following my three sisters. All of us worked hard at seeking peace, and occasionally we found it. But in those early years, when childhood was still very much a part of the picture, there seemed something more attainable than what came to follow. That something might be called the enthusiasm of family. Tessie would not have us fall short at Christmas. Three months earlier, she and Walt argued about this. They argued about bills downstairs in the kitchen. I hung my legs over the drop from the second floor landing. I spread my toes to look through them. Muffin and Terry were in the upstairs front room. They were talking loud in a fashion they chose. They chose this fashion whenever Walt and Tessie started arguing. Joan, who had been in the front of the house, came charging up the stairs. I saw the back of her dark hair through the toes of my right foot. Then she grew larger and larger and pounded up to the second floor, and she pulled me away from the landing and took me into my room. She left in return carrying some pictures of horses. We sat on the floor looking at them. She was talking, but for some reason I could not understand her. Tessie, downstairs, refilled her china cup with more Maxwell House coffee. The set was incomplete. Every time she poured herself a cup, it was a reminder that the set, like her A&P plateware, was incomplete. Many things were incomplete. In fact, the only butter dish that she had was a brown plastic one that she got for filling up her gas tank at a mobile gas station. She turned and looked at Walt. He sat at the kitchen table, which is one of those tubular metal pieces with a swirling formica pattern across its surface. It was a fine Indian summer evening with just a trace of autumn at the lick. There were a few scraps of paper that occasionally picked up with the breeze. Walt moved his left hand, palm down, to bring the papers in place toward him. They were quiet. They were quietly judging what had been said. A few years earlier, or maybe five years, Tessie had, well, she had decided to leave him. There had been a fight, something about feeling stuck in a life going nowhere. It had been a big fight. It had been Tessie fighting mostly because Walt doesn't really fight much. She never left. But ever since then, 
their fighting took on this pattern of quick confrontation, quiet retrenchment, followed by some curious dialogue. When I came to learn how this worked, I was intrigued with the quiet part in the middle. Little things, movement around the room, a cup of coffee, stirring with a spoon, a dog walks in. Little things entered into this quiet space. Now Walt gently moved some of the scraps of paper with his red fingers. Tessie sipped her coffee from where she stood across from him. Well, he said, if they're really going to Florida, then I figure we can find the money. Tessie looked at the floor. The lavish sweeps of yellow grape leaves worn thin in the burgundy linoleum followed a repetitive pattern that intrigued her. She looked at Walt. It's a good house. I, I've always liked that house. Of course, it's closer to the throughway, but I don't really mind that. Walt nodded. Never been to Florida myself. Don't want to go. Nope. He reached for his pipe. It had a metal stem with a plastic bit and a removable wooden bowl. This was something Tessie found in Ladies Home Journal ad, and according to the ad, sucking smoke through a steel stem cooled the taste. Walt, who started his smoking career at age eight sucking Indian tobacco through hollowed corn cobs, found the metal stem cooling system heated up and burned his hand. So he packed this contraption with a a tiny, tiny pinch of tobacco. A long smoke would mean he would burn his fingers. A short smoke he could survive. Of course, we'd be keeping it in the family, she said. Don't know that that means much to you, but your pop, he will like knowing that. She again studied the pattern in the floor. I I can't say that I like that door in the living room. You know that? You know the door. Don't know why there would be a door in the living room. I mean, why would anyone have a door on a living room? You know, this was Mal's idea. The door in the living room was Mal's idea? No, no, sending the folks to Florida. Oh. He looked at the papers. Penciled along the blue lines were different combinations of numbers. These represented money, money earned, money spent, and a possible equation to make it more or less even out. Tessie said, Either way, we are not having a poor Christmas this year, and if we buy that house, I'm going back to work. You are? We are a family of six, and what you earn doesn't cut it. Walt gripped the modern pipe in his teeth. Chucky, he he wants Joan's trains. Well, he can't have them. They belong to her. Anyhow, they're electric. He shouldn't have electric trains. We'll get him some wind-up ones. She swallowed some coffee. It wasn't bad, this Maxwell house. But she still wasn't sure that she was going to entirely give up the A&P brand. Fresh ground was like the sort her, her mother used to buy, and, well, Tessie did favor new ideas, so she was at odds about this. It was the sort of thing that she would quarrel with herself about. We had wonderful Christmases down home sometimes. I just think about that, and I cannot imagine how they managed to buy something for all of us. There were so many of us. And, of course, we all had to be pleased. You know how girls are. It, it, it really didn't take that much to please us, honestly. Still, it was exciting, Christmas morning. I loved it, coming down and seeing all the presents. Walt settled into a regular smoke. He watched Tessie talk. He did that a lot. He was the quiet one of his brothers. With his pipe, he appeared thoughtful, a willing audience. 
but when challenged by his brother Mal as to what he thought about an issue, he often replied, well, I don't think much about it. Despite this, he was given credit for his still waters running deep. Walt did not believe he had still waters. And this, too, was a deep silence. It was something that attracted Tessie. She placed her cup in the middle of the sink, directly over the drain. She then crossed to the middle of the house and stepped out onto the front porch, and there she took out her pack of Chesterfield Kings from her shirt pocket and tapped it three times quickly. She sat on the top step, withdrew a cigarette, and returned the pack to her shirt pocket. Across the street, she noticed the warm glow of the front room television and its distant sound of orchestrated music. This was at Flo and Hunter's house. These were all two family houses, chiefly occupied on the left side by the family of five over there. The three boys, well, they came out and they went and did their business with Flo holding court, usually on the front porch. This evening, that porch was vacant. Television was holding court inside. Things were changing. Down the street, Mal's house was emanating a TV glow of its own. He had a large living room. She could see the blue of the TV against the window. She wondered what programs was she now missing. Walt stepped out onto the porch. He sat down beside her. He continued his smoke. He was quiet. She had already lit her cigarette. She drew long, deep drags, exhaling them through her nostrils. In those days, she remembered years later that she was a real smoker. The evening traffic on the thruway was starting to calm down. Down the street, the shadow of Flip Matoski sat on his front stoop with only one little light, his cigarette, he damn near ruined her electric engine, playing with it in the sand. Tessie was now talking about me. Well, it still works. I don't know what gets into him. He, he sits there with your father for hours, doesn't say a word. Sometimes I think, Walt drew deeply on his smoke. She didn't have to finish her sentence. I was an odd, big-headed boy with great searching eyes and curious habits. And then there was this whole business about her wanting to, to leave before this last pregnancy. Tessie took it all in. Sometimes she stayed up at night smoking and watching her old movies until the stations signed off. More than once, Walt found her asleep in a chair with a lit cigarette in her fingers. I think he's all right. I, I just don't know, she said. Well... I got a couple of hundred stashed away in my sock drawer. What for? Uh, don't know. Hunting trip, maybe. Well, we could use that for Christmas. She shook her head. Damn it. You ought to be able to go on your damn hunting trip. He thought for a moment about hunting. Before the thruway, we boys used to just walk right out the front door and up Lake Road into the Torn Valley and didn't even... Bother with the car. Didn't have to drive nowhere. Me and Dutch, we would spend the day looking for deer, bring a little lunch along, come down just about supper. Uh, not Mal, though. He was never one for hunting. Me, Dutch, sometimes Johnny, Inky, Flip. Uh, we all come along and maybe a couple others. We'd bring in a few deer between us eventually. Always liked venison. Well, where's this hunting trip you were planning on? Oh, I don't know. I uh, thought we'd get together, maybe do a trip in the North Country. The Adirondacks, a fly-in trip. Yeah, I uh, don't know. Tessie drew again on her Chesterfield. She heard a door slam. Down the street, the shadow of Jesse Matoski came out to join her husband. 
Walt, it's a nice house, really. Could be, could be a good one, done upright. That would just leave Inky and Dot renting. Well, if we need it, we'll spend it. It'd be good to keep it in the family. That Christmas, I had been prepped by everyone that a train might be waiting for me. I had been told that we could not afford to buy one, but Santa might be willing to supply one. Christmas seemed new to me. I could not recall there being one before this. I was three years old. It was 1956. And despite everything Tessie told me, I could not discern between right and wrong. I was forbidden to play with Joan's electric engine, and I did anyway. And then I was scolded, and it didn't seem to make any impression on me. On Christmas Eve, Muffin, who wore her hair pulled back in a single ponytail, told me that, well, I had not really been that good and that Santa was not pleased with me. Tessie drove us to Suffern in a dusty warm car that smelled of Chesterfields and perfume. Santa was in Suffern at the Woolworths, walking around and touching the tops of children's heads. Tessie told us that this would be an opportunity for me to make amends with Santa. I was instructed to ask for a train set. I wanted a train set. This was the way for me to get one. I looked back at Tessie as she encouraged me to do this. Muffin was standing beside her. They both motioned me. I walked down the toy aisle, rigid in my snowsuit. Santa turned from two little girls and he saw me. I froze. He walked toward me, ho, ho, hoing. He was big and heavy and very red. His beard looked like cotton from a medicine bottle. It was all in his funny little folds. It did not look like hair to me. He bent down and said, What's your name? I said nothing. He hesitated and looked up at Tessie. Now I know your name is on my list, but there are so many children. Still, I said nothing. Well, have you been a good boy? I was speechless. He looked up at Tessie and back down at me. Your mama says you've been a good boy, is that right? Why couldn't I talk? I seldom talk, that's true, but now I couldn't talk at all. What was wrong? All right, son. You behave and you'll be very happy tomorrow. And remember, I see you when you're sleeping. This was too much. I screamed. During the drive home, Muffin... A precocious adolescent told Tessie that my reaction was typical of a disturbed child's behavior. Christmas morning, I was the last to arise. My sisters, still in their pajamas, encouraged me to come downstairs. I descended the narrow staircase to the first floor, and there I was directed to the front room. With the entire family gathered around, I was presented with a decorated tree and heaps of boxes all wrapped in colored paper, some of them with bows and ribbons, and there was no train set in sight. The family's eagerness struck me as some kind of a joke, this sort of teasing humor I knew nothing about. I turned to their smiling faces, and I said, Ha, ha, ha. It was as flat a tone as I could could muster. And they were confused. And then suddenly they all started all talking at the same time and, and encouraging me to unwrap things. And I shook my head, and I demanded, Don't nobody talk! And they were stunned. And Tessie went to the large box, the largest of them all, and tore off some paper revealing a picture of a steam engine. Indeed, in a few years, the ritual of unwrapping became a part of my life, but it was fused with an anxiety of the unexpected. 
Some years later, after requesting a derby for months, I received a wrapped hat box in which I discovered a stuffed toy snake. The explanation had something to do with not genuinely believing a boy would even want a derby. The Christmas of 1956 was not a bad one at all. Walt sacrificed a phantom hunting trip, which would take another 13 years before it materialized. Between Tessie and Santa, we all made out all right. But the quiet, nervous discussions about moving and about Florida continued through the new year. And one day, well, one day we waved goodbye to my grandparents. It took a week before I realized that heebie-jeebie was gone. And with their moving south, we moved one street over into their old house. Everywhere I looked, I expected heebie-jeebie, especially on the back porch, where he used to sit in the sun, smoke cigars, and tell stories. As winter thawed out, I sat on the back porch, waiting for his return. from our favorite sponsor, Montgomery Book Exchange. Hey, Scott, have you been to Montgomery Book Exchange yet? No, but my wife Nina says I'm going this week. She's put together a bag of books she wants me to take there. You'll get store credit for that, so you can bring home more books. Nina says I can only bring home one book. Well, then you ought to get yourself a cup of coffee next door at the Iron Cafe and do a little browsing. Yeah, if the weather's nice, you can sit out back, there's tables and chairs, and you can escape into an old book. And it's such a sweet little village of Montgomery with a nice community feeling. Yep, Montgomery Book Exchange. Look them up online or call 845-764-1787. Okay, guys, I'm going to the book exchange. Don't forget, Nina says you can only bring back one book. Check them out at MontgomeryBookExchange.com. Chuck, that's hard. It's <laughs> really hard. <laughs> oh man, I, I, we all we all we all love Pop's dead now. <laughs> and he disappeared. Yay, yay! <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, you know, I have to. So Joan had trains. <laughs> that's the takeaway <laughs> oh my god joan had the train joan had a beautiful train set well i always thought of joan as just plain beautiful and elegant and a grown-up you know kind of a thing yep and uh she had she started the because your train set to me when i was a kid oh my god it was just the most incredible thing yeah now of the two of you who's older I'm about a about two years older. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. About two years older, and uh, but I used to go to his. I used to love to come to to Hilburn and and stay over with Chuck for a few days. And he had trains, and he had a mountain right outside <laughs> his front door. There was a yeah. mountain. As soon as you walked out, you could climb a mountain. There's um, a reason Chuck became Chuck. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It was great. Well, well, um, Joan had trains. Joan was taught to fly fish. Joan had 
the keenest set of dual cap pistols in the village. No boy could match Joan for the boy toys that she had. She had all... Joan... The the gender classification did not apply to Joan. She was beautiful. She was vivacious. Certainly was. And and just a, a tracking presence. But for the same token... She was she was Joan. She was she could be tough and and uh, and of course she as you know as she got older the dogs the horses the, the yeah. whole dynamic uh, of of the the animals and so forth was very much her thing. And, and she wasn't afraid of that horse. No, not at all. Not at all. She, you know, she would get that horse straightened out if it was, you know, push, you know, pulling back from her or pushing back or whatever. I was absolutely petrified of this huge animal. <laughs> right. This huge animal, this small garage. She'd walk right in there and straighten it out and yeah, everything yeah, and yeah. get it calm. And Well, because it trusted her. Yeah. You know, that was the thing. It, oh, knew, yeah. it knew, knew this was Joan. The, the horse, yeah. in later stories, I think I talk about this a little bit, the horse um, knew who we all were the moment we walked into the, the barn, into the little garage barn. You know, knew which one came in knew which one's going to give it an extra bit of oats, knew which one it allowed to come into the, the stall and somebody else it might squeeze over and give them a hard time. I took notes this time because there's so many things that pop up in your stories. Maxwell House Coffee. Yes. Man, that's good coffee. Do <laughs> yes. you remember that? Do you remember yes. that commercial? Yes, yes. Man, that's good coffee. Chesterfields, they satisfy. Ah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well. And they were they were rough. A Chesterfield yeah. was a. It was like smoking a Marlboro. Yeah. It was it was a rough cigarette. It was. And it, it wasn't the ones that she was smoking. Them weren't filtered, so they were like the Marlboro pack. They were a little shorter, and and they were they were tough. I think her and Mary both smoked those. Yep, that's why she said she was a real smoker. You know, yeah. that was their little macho thing that ah, she did. <laughs> it was, yeah. Very true. And they were inhalers. They would inhale and it would glide out their nostrils, that sort of thing. Yep, yep. Money in the sock draw. Yeah. That was a thing from back then. What do you think it was? That they didn't trust the bank or they, you know, it's just my money. I'm not putting this in the bank. I don't want anybody to know that I have this money. Well, I I think it was setting money aside that's not going to be used for the the other stuff. Okay. I mean, I think I'd do that. You know, when, when I have things that I want to put away for, for, for holidays, for a trip, for does, whatever. Does Nina know this? Some of them. <laughs> because she's going to hear this one day. Oh, I know. Yeah, right. no. Okay. no, in fact, I've, I'm very proud that I've taught my, my son, Brian, how to do that. And he does the same thing now. And so it's not a matter of being able to, you can afford almost anything. Right. You just have right. to pace yourself and, and separate things as you go and don't spend what money you want for a certain project until you have all the money. Right. right and I right. mean, I learned that from my, my grandmother who, I don't know if she did the same exact thing, but um, she always said the problem with, with today, which is, you know, 50 years ago, she's 103 now. She would say, you know, people don't uh, say, you have to save to, to, to buy things. You want something, you have to save for it. The whole mindset of credit cards and all of the other, you know, spending money you don't physically have is, was foreign to her. And that just seemed like a, 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 a way to, to get what, what you want or need. Or let's say what you want. What you need, that goes in the bank. Right, right, right. <laughs> but the things that you want, there's a way to, to do that. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, I, I, I uh, probably inherited from uh, Walt Tessie. I have a hard time uh, buying things on credit. 
I've always had that, you know, and, and of course you got to buy a car on credit. Who, who can afford yeah, what right. a car costs? Mm-hmm. And cars wouldn't cost that much if the entire credit system had come into being because they never would have been able to sell us cars, you know, mm-hmm. like that. But um, I, I still have that hard time. I, I really do. It's, uh, and, and Kat, I think my wife appreciates it because I'm not a spendthrift, but I'm not really much of a spender at all, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. compared to folks I know. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so scared of debt. And rightly so. I mean, that's... Yeah. I have debt. I have the student loan for my uh, doctoral. But yeah. but my master's, which I still have, you know, but I only got the doctoral one in 2015. But but the master's, I paid for out of pocket. And when I was going to school for that, colleagues there would say, what? What the hell? What are you doing that for? And everybody said that to me. Nobody paid. I would literally make cash payments every so often to the school that I was going to. Well, it's in the long run, way. by not, you know, borrowing or anything, you obviously, you did save a lot of money. I, I share the fear of credit. I share the fear of debt, you know, coming from a family as big as ours. Yeah, yeah. 11 brothers and sisters. And, you know, we we had some pretty thin times, even with my father's little grocery store, which is what we used, to, which fed everybody in the family. Uh, you know, it, it was too much, too big a family for, to afford and, you know, you talked about the arguments. The arguments were always over money. Yep. You know, they loved each other. Yep. It, was, it was nothing else. There was never any, uh, uh, you know, inappropriate behavior or anything else. It was about money, yeah. you know, that strained at the relationships. And and I, I uh, you know, it was the same thing with us. And it was interesting to hear you say that, you know, you're, that uh, Muffin and Terry went up into the room and, you know, would talk in a certain way to kind of, Blot that out, you know, blot out the sound of the argument because you hated to hear your folks argue. Yeah. You know, you knew they loved each other and you knew it was hurting them, even them, to argue. But, you know, times were tough, you know, and that's just the way it was back then. In Hilburn, for the most part, everybody was working class poor. None of us kids really knew that. Yeah. That's what really, collectively, I've, I've over the years got a sense that none of us really knew how close to the edge we were. We just, we be, we were thrifty because our folks were thrifty, but we didn't know this is the way we have to be. And right. we're watching the numbers to the end of the month and then we'll figure it out from there. And Christmas 56 is true. We ultimately would not have had presents under the tree if Walt hadn't given up his, his hunting trip. This was... And 13 years later, he goes on one. Yeah. <laughs> Did he bring anything back? <laughs> oh, I see. Holy mackerel. The bear on the wall. <laughs> the bear on the wall. How about that? And that's a whole other story because he didn't want a bear. Oh. That's a whole, but that we'll save that for another mm, time. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think t- hearing you talk about the, the fact that everyone was, was thrifty, not because they felt they had to be, but because it was a... It was so, because everybody was in the same boat, essentially. Yes. One of the problems I'm noticing with the internet is that everyone sees what everybody else has. Hmm. And the, the wealthiest, you know, 0.1% puts out these stupid videos on YouTube or whatever to, to see their sneaker collection in Saudi Arabia or whatever, or, or their cars <laughs> yep. of millions and millions of dollars. And now everyone sees that and thinks, oh, that's how we're supposed to be. And so even if you are in a middle income setting and you have everything you could need and many things that you want, 
it's never enough because you're always seeing what could be. Which is a really warped picture mm -hmm. of what really matters in life and what's really important. I've had too many friends whose daughters got themselves in, a, in trouble because they were posting pictures of themselves that were inappropriate and they were just pre-adolescent or adolescent. They were very young. Yep. And, and the first time that happened, I thought, oh my God, what's going on in that family? And like literally within six months, I heard it happening with numerous other people. And it's not what's going on in that family. It's what's going on in the fabric of this society that children are being invited into this relatively scary world and they're not yet fixed psychologically to know how to you know, maneuver it. It makes parenting literally impossible now. I, my son's 16, right in the heat of all of this. And he also has got a very good head on his shoulders. We trust him and, and everything. But it makes the judgment calls that you have to make as a parent almost impossible to do. Because again, you're competing with the entire world in terms of what yeah, is acceptable, yeah. what isn't. And it's not the actual world. It's what our kids perceive the world's perception yeah. to be. I don't know how you get through this. It's really, really tough. You know, it's so interesting that we're talking about this. Uh, my friend Ethel Holtberg, who now lives in southern France, and she, she uh, comments sometimes on the daily stories. Uh, she told a little story the other day. She p had a fairly long text in, in her comment about what it was like when she and her husband, Paul, raised their kids in a Mount Ivy of another day, which was, you know, in Rockland County years back in the late 50s and early 60s. And it was such a sweet little story. I love that little, in fact, maybe I'll tell it at some point if Ethel lets me, because such a sweet little story. And then she commented at the end how this, this is not what we have now. This is an indication of something that used to be. You know, the value of this has passed somehow. We've, we've let it go somehow. And, uh, and I, I think a lot of things are, are contributing to that. But I, I think, even though I read her story on the Internet, right, I think the Internet plays a huge role because it's a, a, a wildly uncontrolled uh, social media that invites so many perceptions that are unreal. I mean, just look at where our country is today. So many things are so distorted now. And uh, it, it speaks to needing to do this, needing to see one another and, and talk with one another or, right. or maybe getting control of some of that Internet stuff like we're trying to do here and, and bringing it two or three notches down to some level of sensibility. Yeah, I was just going to say the optimist in me thinks the, the web is uh, in, in the Wild West phase. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point there will be some kind of regulation from the outside to, to bring it into control. Because it's a very useful tool, but it can't just be whatever anybody wants. Well, Joe can be the sheriff, and he can come into the web town. <laughs> I'll tell you what. There you go. <laughs> I hear you have some cap guns we could use. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> and with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode. The, the next one is called The First Deer. The first deer. Yes. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. Okie doke. You've been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. 
We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m. So please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.